there, everybody. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am so glad that you are here with me today, and I'm super excited to talk with you about taking care of patients with GI bleed. So this is episode 107, and before we hop into it, as you know, I always like to give a little love back to those of you that take the time to subscribe on your podcast listening apps such as Apple Podcasts and leave a review. So Ken's Kim, um, I hope I'm saying that right, left this review recently saying, amazing, must download. This podcast is super helpful, especially sometimes professors don't elaborate so much as in detail in addition to our books. But here, everything is brought together. It's amazing and very helpful. I would recommend this 100%. Thank you so, so very much for taking the time to leave that helpful review. I hope that a student out there looking for a nursing podcast to listen to reads your words of encouragement and decides to subscribe. It can definitely only help them. Okay, so as I said, today we are talking about GI bleeds. So before we get going into that, I will have to say that GI bleeds are one of the scariest things that you can encounter as a nurse. And the reason for that is because the bleeding is often, not always, but often internal and Maybe the patient doesn't show any signs, and then all of a sudden they crump. They might look like they're doing okay, and then they're suddenly not. So these patients can decompensate very, very quickly. So this is a condition that you will see pretty regularly, whether you're working in the emergency room, whether you're working on the floors or in an intensive care unit, which is where I normally come across these patients. The GI bleeds are going to come in a, several different formats, you guys. So sometimes these are slow and steady bleeds that sneak up on the patient, like they don't realize they're having an issue. And all of a sudden, you know, or maybe over the course of a few days, they'll start feeling a little bit weaker, a little bit weaker. Maybe they are having trouble catching their breath. And sometimes that's the only thing that brings them into the emergency room. They're just so weak. Well, they're super weak because they're super anemic because they've bled so much. Some patients will have more obvious symptoms. They'll have that coffee ground emesis. Um, they might have that bright red Oh my goodness, what is that in the in the commode kind of bleeding? That's very scary for patients. Um, some patients have very, um, very scary upper GI bleeds from like esophageal varices and things like that. And those are incredibly scary for both the patient and the nurse. Um, but let's start with some basics before we get into all of that. So the first thing to know about GI bleeds is that there are upper GI bleeds and there are lower GI bleeds. So when we say something 
um, is upper or lower, what we're referring to is the location of where that bleed is originating. So when we're looking at the upper GI bleeds, we're talking about bleeds that originate above the duodenum. And then lower GI bleeds are below the duodenum. So if you forgot where the duodenum is, that's A-OK. -okay. The duodenum is that very first segment of the small intestine, okay? So again, upper GI bleed, upper is above the duodenum, and lower would be below that. And then you are going to hear some different terms to describe the bleeding and how it appears. Um, when you are assessing your patient, you will hear people talk about coffee grounds. You'll hear people talk about black and tarry stools, like tar. That's what they're talking about. And you'll also hear them saying the word frank. Is it frank? They're not asking if that's the patient's name. They're asking about frank blood, fresh, bright red, current bleeding. So coffee ground refers to emesis and coffee ground emesis will be um, the patient throws up G uh, blood in the GI tract is very irritating to the GI tract and patients will throw up um, if it's coming up that way they will have diarrhea if it's heading out the other way so it's very irritating to the GI tract the body wants it out of there so when the patient throws up and it's blood that has been partially digested or clotted a bit in that upper GI tract, it looks like coffee grounds. So we call that coffee ground emesis. So typically, if the patient has coffee ground emesis, usually that indicates that the blood has been in there for a bit. There could be an a chance that the bleeding is not actively happening, but it still needs to be investigated. This patient still needs to be followed closely. Now, when we talk about that black and tarry stool, you will hear this also referred to as melena or melena. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. I was just in the Facebook group that I run, and we were talking about how hard it is to pronounce some of these terms. And if you only ever read them, you might pronounce them incorrectly in your mind until you go to clinicals and you hear them. I would say melena, but... Please correct me if I'm misremembering that one. Usually we call it black tarry stools. That's definitely easier to say. So if your patient has these black tarry stools, this means, uh, often it means that the bleeding is taking place in that esophagus or in the stomach or in that upper part of that small intestine. And it's, you know, it's like older. It's this older bleeding. Melina has a distinctive odor that you will also never, ever, ever forget. Doesn't mean the patient isn't bleeding right now. I want to, let me backtrack a little bit. A patient could have a bleed that has been repaired and still have some of that black tarry stuff because it will persist while the blood is still working its way through the GI tract. So I just wanted to, to clarify that. They could have active bleeding by the time it gets through the um, rest of the GI tract, then it turns into that black tarry stool, okay? And then we have frank bleeding, which is that bright red blood. And that's definitely a sign that the bleeding is happening right this minute, whether they're vomiting frank blood or passing it um, through the rectum. Frank blood means bleeding right 
now. And that can be from an upper or a lower GI tract bleed. So in the lower GI tract, you know, that could be due to diverticulosis. It could be due to anal fissures, which can be really painful. Hemorrhoids can bleed. Um, maybe the patient has inflammatory bowel disease. They have cancer. There could be a lot of different reasons why the patient has a lower GI bleed. And when there's bright, frank blood passing through the anus, we call that hematochesia, and that's H-E-M-A-T-O-C-H-E-Z-I-A, in case my pronunciation is off, hematochesia. And so if you come across that word, you're reading a doctor's note, now you know what it means. So in the upper GI tract, it's usually due to a very bad ulcer. Or um, it's due to problems in the esophagus, so esophageal tears, esophageal varices, uh, cancers that are um, can't, uh, tumors are very highly vascularized. You could have a bleeding vessel that's feeding a tumor. You could have a tumor that's infringing on an artery. You could have, you know, a lot of different problems with cancers and even just severe esophagitis, very severe esophagitis could cause that, that bleeding from the esophagus. And I have to say, when I was a brand, brand new nurse, there was some commotion happening. I remember, I remember this so clearly. I completely remember the patient I was taking care of that day and, um, because I was so new when you're brand new, you have like tunnel vision. So I was just super, super focused on what was happening right in front of me, which was the patient that I was trying to figure out how to take care of as a brand new ICU nurse. But I noticed all this activity happening across the way. And so I kind of watch and I'm curious about what's happening, but I don't yet have enough knowledge or clinical judgment or skill to go help and be useful. So the best way that I could participate in that scenario was to just observe and learn. And it was an esophageal tear or an esophageal varices. I think it was an esophageal varices that basically ruptured and bled and the patient just died right there, just bled to death right in front of us. So these sorts of things can happen very, very quickly and can be absolutely devastating. So Always knowing what you're going to do and how you're going to care for these patients is key to keeping them safe. So when we're looking at a patient with a GI bleed, um, we want to make sure that we're doing the right kinds of assessments on these patients. So these patients will often be getting serial H&H, um, a serial hemoglobin and hematocrit, and that will tell us if their blood counts are improving or worsening. And usually these are every four to six hours apart. You will also want to monitor their platelets, their INR, their PTT. Um, platelets are going to tell us like if they have, you know, a platelet disorder. If their platelets are really low, you want to know that because it's going to exacerbate any bleeding. And then their INR and their PTT, if they're on any kind of pharmacological anticoagulation therapy. You're obviously going to monitor the patient for signs of bleeding. And the difficult thing with this is that the bleeding, again, can be hidden. It can be very secretive. And then you don't even know it's occurring until the patient crumps right in front of you. So 
I talk about this in the podcast episode, How Nurses Get Stuff Done. I don't remember the number to that, but if you just go back and look for it, it's probably in the 40s, I would say, uh, the number of 30s, 40s to 50s. Anyway, in that episode, I talk about a situation where I had a patient who had a GI bleed. It was a, I believe it was the lower GI bleed. I believe it was. And, you know, she was this frail woman. And um, I go in there in the morning and I, she um, says that she needs to be cleaned up. She, because, you know, again, the patients with those GI bleeds, if it's coming out through the rectum, you know, uh, they can have incontinence, they can have um, that diarrhea, that urgency, because it is so irritating the GI tract. So she, you know, she'd had little episode there in the bed and she was talking to me and all of that, but she was very weak. So I got a friend to come help me and we, you know, turned her on her side to get her all straightened up and cleaned up. And there was a large clotted mass of blood in, in the bed on the Chuck's pad. And I'm going to say size wise, probably eight inches around. I mean, it was good sized. So got her cleaned up and fixed up. I don't remember if the MD was there at the time or not. Um, But a little bit later, same thing. She says, oh, I think I need to be, uh, I think I had another accident or, you know, whatever, whatever term she used. And I go in again and turn her to get her clean. And there's another big clotted glob of just blood. I mean, it was, it was large. Um, I have a really good nurse poker face, so I kept my composure, but I went and got the MD and said, you need to come see this right now. So MD came into the room and saw how much she was bleeding. And um, before long, we were doing mass blood transfusions, putting in central lines, and getting her down to interventional radiology to see if they could stop that bleeding. So in that podcast episode, I talk about how I managed a situation where I had so many things to do all at once, and they were all competing for priority number one, and how I prioritized all of that and delegated to others in order to get everything accomplished. So I did check that was episode 42. So if you want to go back and check that out and you're interested in learning about prioritizing and delegating and time management and managing a complex situation, check that out. Episode 42, How Nurses Get Stuff Done. Okay, so that's how we're going to assess the patient um, with their labs. We're watch- And then we're watching for signs of bleeding. So as I was saying, sometimes the bleeding is secretive, like in this patient, if you just if you didn't bother to turn and get her on her side and assess, you wouldn't know she was bleeding. There was a giant puddle of blood under her. Um, some patients will bleed internally for a long time before they pass that blood. So you want to make sure that you are looking at their skin signs. You know, patients that are losing blood are going to become pale. They could even get that bluish tinge um, around their lips or... Um, peripherally, they could look a little bit mottled. So you're watching the skin signs, you're feeling their skin signs. Are they nice and warm? Or are they kind of cool? Are they perfusing? 
How are they doing hemodynamically? What is their blood pressure? Has their heart rate gone up? Maybe their heart rate has gone up to compensate for the low blood volume. So you're assessing their vital signs, you're assessing their skin signs, and you want to monitor their mentation, their level of consciousness. Are they awake and alert and talking to you and everything's peachy or are they lethargic and becoming more lethargic? So you're always monitoring those things. Um, you could perform an occult blood test. That is a test that is done on the stool to see if there's blood in there. And I I don't know why it's called an occult blood test. Um, I think it's because you can't really see that there's blood in the stool and this test detects it. And that's just a quick um, quick test that you send down to the lab. And then you can also assess the patient for abdominal pain. Like I said, um, sometimes the blood is irritating to the GI tract and that causes abdominal pain. Other things can cause abdominal pain like ulcers can be painful as well. So what are we going to do for our patient that has a GI bleed? What nursing interventions and things are we going to be managing on this patient? So you want to always make sure that your patient who is bleeding has two good IVs in place. This would be for your anticipated blood administration that you may be doing. They may be getting fluids to increase their intravascular volume. Um, some patients will need antibiotics. It just kind of depends on what their bleeding um, is coming from. They may need their electrolytes replaced. They might get on a protonics drip, which is a continuous infusion of protonics. So protonics is uh, the generic drug pantoprazole, which I'm also probably saying wrong, pantoprazole, pantoprazole. How that works is it, it drastically reduces and pretty quickly reduces gastric acid secretion. And with that Less amount of gastric acid secretion, you can promote healing of ulcers and um, erosions in the GI tract and also can stabilize thrombi and decrease that GI bleeding in your patient. So you'll often see them on a protonics drip. So other things that you will be doing for this patient is you want to make sure that they have a type and screen that has been done, that they have been banded. If somebody says, has he been banded? What they're talking about is a blood band. And so the blood band indicates that the patient's blood has been drawn and they've sent it to the lab to determine what type of blood he needs should he need it. And if you don't have the patient banded yet, then they will get that universal donor blood, which is that O negative blood. But that blood is not very common and you want to try to avoid using it if you can. It would only be used in an emergency. It would be much better for the patient to get the actual blood type that they need. And then speaking of blood transfusion, so the patient may need a blood transfusion that is very, very common with patients who have GI bleeds. So um, maybe I mentioned earlier, massive blood transfusion. There's a, you know, most facilities would have what's called a massive transfusion protocol where the patient isn't uh, maybe they're banded, maybe they're not. Um, let's say they are banded and they've started bleeding and you know their blood type. They're going to get in the massive transfusion protocol where I work, that's four units and they're given all at once to the nurse. Usually the blood bank will only give us one unit at a time because blood that is being given um, 
it's given over a certain period of time, and you guys will learn about, about all this if you haven't yet. And typically, you would give um, one unit monitor for reactions and then um, go down and get the next unit and give that and give them uh, in that in that manner. You wouldn't want to pull two units of blood and then have one just sitting there for a few hours before you start giving it. I believe it's 20 or 30 minutes that the blood has to be um, initiated. Um, and that's going to vary by facility, but that's, I believe what my facility's protocol is, but with the massive transfusion protocol where I work, they send you up four units all at once and you go to town, you get as much blood into that patient as quickly as possible. You're still checking it with another nurse. You're doing those double checks. You're taking their temperature. You're monitoring for reaction. But if you don't get this blood into the patient, they're going to die. So you have to get it in as quickly as possible. And that can be infused through something called a rapid infuser, which is this machine. It's kind of like an IV pump for blood and it will uh, push it in very rapidly and in some cases warm it if the patient needs it warmed and like a trauma patient or something. And then um, another way would be to put it um, in under pressure. And so when you're giving blood and when you're learning how to give blood, you'll notice that the blood tubing has a little bulb on it. That little bulb is there so that you can squeeze in and give the blood faster. So anyway, giving blood transfusions is very common. Just make a note that there are some cultures that will refuse blood transfusions under all costs. So just make sure that you um, you know the patients, um, you know, if they have any issues like that, that they are fully educated on the need for the blood. And that would be the MD's job. That is not your required um, duty to do. That's the MD's job. But just make sure the MD knows like, hey, this patient is a Jehovah's Witness. I just want you to be aware. Her hemoglobin is 4.5. Um, maybe you should go speak with her. Most likely the patient who is a Jehovah's Witness, these patients are usually very devout and very closely adhere to their religious beliefs will refuse blood and that is absolutely their right but you have to um, you know the MD has to be able to document that the patient has been thoroughly educated on that and then a lot of times with those patients it's more of a um, supportive care and um, I've seen patients with very low hemoglobins improve even though they are refusing blood products you know their bleeding stops and over a period of you know, it's going to take a lot longer, but I have seen them improve. So it's not always that they're going to die without blood transfusion. Some patients will. Um, it just really depends on the individual. But with that said, just know that blood transfusion is absolutely something that you must get consent for. And hospitals have special blood transfusion consent forms, and those have to be signed before the blood transfusion. Now, if it's an emergency, and there's no one there to sign for the patient, make decisions for them if they're unable to participate in their care, then there can be, um, the physician can override that. It would be like an emergent transfusion. It's part of the emergency protocol. Two MDs can consent for on behalf of a patient for life-saving measures. And I think that's a general um, thing across the board. It could be facility-specific, but just know most of the time, you're getting the patient's consent or the family's consent, and somebody is signing a specific form for blood transfusion consent. Okay, so another thing that you would be doing for this patient is, let's say they have, uh, you suspect, or the MD suspects, everybody suspects that there's bleeding happening from the lower GI tract. So 
the attending has gotten a GI consult and the GI doc comes in and says, yeah, let's do a colonoscopy tomorrow. Well, now this patient needs what's called bowel prep. So I have found that getting patients to perform their bowel prep is really challenging. Nobody wants to drink the, well, I'm not going to say nobody because of course some people do. I would say my experience has been, it's been difficult to get patients to drink the bowel prep so that they can get their colonoscopy. And I don't, I mean, I kind of don't blame them. It tastes terrible, but if it's the choice of I have to drink this awful tasting stuff and be up half the night on the toilet, I mean, that's not a great alternative, but bleeding to death from your bleeding ulcer in your large intestine is also not a good option either. So I get it. Sometimes medical interventions are uncomfortable for patients. So just do your best to make sure they understand why they have to drink the entire, like it's a lot. I think it's a whole gallon. It might even be more. I think it's a whole gallon um, of Go Lightly. And it, I've heard it tastes terrible. I've never tried it. I'm actually a little, I don't, I don't want to try it. Um, I've heard enough horror stories about how bad it tastes. I think the pineapple is really awful, but of course the pineapple is what we have. Some things that patients can do to improve the taste of the Go Lightly formula is so it's like a powdered medication or whatever that comes from the pharmacy in this big jug and there's just powder in it and you add water to um, dilute it so it's like a whole gallon of water with this go lightly stuff in it that just makes them poop all night not really all night but kind of um, it's to get their bowels clear so that the GI doc when they go in with their colonoscopy you know with their scope they can actually see so it's very important that they do this bowel prep and clear their bowels so that the GI doc can actually see and diagnose and maybe even fix the problem so they have to drink the stuff it tastes terrible we usually start it you know later in the night uh, because we want their bowels to be clear and for the team to come in early in the morning and do the scope. And that's just how it usually works out. So people don't like doing it. So anyway, some of the things they can do to make it taste a little better is give them a lot of ice. Sometimes people say it goes down a little easier if it's super cold. So pouring it over ice and then drinking it that way is helpful. And then I've also heard patients say if they put some powdered crystal light into it, that helps disguise the flavor a little bit as well. So we don't, I don't know if we have crystal light at my hospital, but, um, Actually, I think we might. So we get it from dietary or we just have the patients bring it in. It's fine. As long as they're on, you know, the kind of diet that allows that sort of thing. I don't even know if Crystal Light has sugar in it. I think it doesn't. I think that's why it's called Crystal Light, right? So it might be okay for a diabetic patient to have it. So anyway, doing the bowel prep would be a big part of your job. And that patient's going to be up and down and up and down to the commode or on and off the bedpan basically all night long. And so you will see the MD will order, you know, bowel prep until clear. What that means is they want the go lightly coming in and they want it coming out 
clear. No stool in there at all. There could still be blood if the patient's actively bleeding, but you're not seeing stool. And that will give the uh, GI doctor the best opportunity to really see when they go in there with their scope. Okay. So, um, and then for an upper scope that's called an EGD. It actually has a very, very, very long name that I'm not even going to try to pronounce, but just know um, the patient may get an upper endoscopy, an EGD if the bleed is upper, or a lower endoscopy, which would be like colonoscopy kind of thing if it's um, down below. Okay, so another thing that the patient could go to is interventional radiology, like in that example I provided earlier. Um, and if the patient is an ICU patient, which if they're going to IR to get GI bleeding fixed, they should be in the ICU, um, you would be accompanying the patient down there. The endoscopies in the ICU are done at the bedside. They come to the bedside. But if the patient's on the regular floor, they may go down to the endoscopy suite to get it done down there. But if your patient's going to IR and you're the ICU nurse, you're traveling down with the patient and monitoring them while they're down there. So in the case of this patient that was had the big pools of blood in the bed, of course, I went down and was in IR wearing the full bunny suit, which is the kind of like that full body covering. It's a white full body covering um, uh, PPE, and we call it a bunny suit because you kind of look like a bunny because it's big and it's like one size fits everyone. And I'm like 5'3 and not too big. So it's huge on me. So we call it a bunny suit. And then on top of that bunny suit, um, I'm wearing the lead, the lead shield, and it's hot in there anyway. So I've got my scrubs on, my bunny suit on, my lead on. I'm stressed as heck because this woman is trying to die, and I'm trying to not let that happen. And um, pumping in blood, so I'm standing there in the interventional radiology suite, hand pumping this blood into this poor woman and just praying that it all works. And as I'm doing that, I'm sweating like buckets. So she was fine. She ended up uh, recovering, which was great. They were able to stop the bleeding down there in interventional radiology. And it was just whew, huge relief. Okay. So taking the patient to IR, interventional radiology is an intervention that could possibly be done. And you also want to anticipate that the patient's going to be NPO. So you'll be keeping them NPO for a bit um, especially pre-intervention. And I have seen patients lose their minds because they're in PO for, you know, overnight before they have a procedure. And again, it's that, do you want to get better or do you want to eat? Like, sometimes you'll have to do a lot of educating with patients about why these interventions are ordered and why it's in their best interest to follow them. Like recently at a... Um, I was talking to a nurse who had a patient go AMA um, against medical advice, leave against medical advice, needed some kind of bowel surgery, don't know what it was, um, but wanted to eat. And so left to eat when the, I don't remember what the issue was, but it was something that could definitely cause him to lose his life or lose a very large part of his bowels. So, you know, some patients just don't want to be uncomfortable for any period of time. They would rather have um, the consequences of their illness, which is really sad. So this is where that patients, that empathy and that patient education can really help um, a situation. Some patients are just not going to be uh, convincible and 
you have to just know that they've received all the education that they can. And, you know, at that point, it's kind of out of your hands, which is unfortunate. So a lot of patients will be NPO. And then the diet will typically progress to clear liquids, which are things like broth, water, tea. I think coffee is considered a clear. Jello, I believe, is considered a clear liquid. Um, anything that is basically clear. And typically, I know your nursing school exams will say nothing red. So don't be giving them cranberry juice. Don't be giving them the red jello. You know, maybe they can have the green jello if you have it. The point is you don't want um, what they pass in their stool or if they throw up to be red from cranberry juice. If you see red, you want to be able to definitively say, oh, they must be bleeding because they haven't had anything red to drink or eat. So nothing red um, and that's clears. And then full liquids would be the next step of the diet and full liquids are more like pureed soups um, which is much more palatable than just the broth I believe the ice cream comes and the sorbet comes on the full liquid trays so the diet is advanced slowly is my point And then you'll be giving the patient lots of medications. Like I mentioned earlier, they may be on that protonics infusion, that pantoprazole infusion. Some patients may be on antibiotics or antifungals. It just depends on what's going on in their GI tract. May need to replace fluids and electrolytes in these patients. And again, just anticipate lots of trips to the bedside commode, either or the bedpan or cleaning up patients that are unable to get out of bed or ask for a bedpan, um, not only because of the prep for the procedure, but because, again, the bleeding is irritating to the GI tract and they can have some diarrhea with that. If your patient's getting up and down to the commode, or um, going to the bathroom, if the room has a bathroom in it. Our ICUs don't, but um, the regular floors do. You want to make sure that they don't flush because you want to go in and look at it. As fun as that is, you need to look and see if there's any blood in that stool, in that commode at all. So ask them to not flush, okay? So that's very important. And then if they're vomiting a lot as well, you know, you'll be in there helping them through that also. So again, GI bleeds can go bad. They can go bad quickly. They can be very scary. Um, Your patient can bleed out right in front of you, like that patient that had the esophageal varices. I would say that's one of the things that makes me really nervous when I have a patient with an esophageal varice because I know that can happen. I've seen it happen. So um, the other thing, you know, I had a patient you know, a while back who got up to use the commode, had a GI bleed, got up to use the commode and coded because his hemoglobin was so low. So um, just making sure that these patients stay on bed rest while they're so anemic and getting them over that hump and getting the transfusion in or just waiting a few days after the bleeding has stopped, seeing how their hemoglobin does, checking their strength, checking their oxygen reserves, all of those things, making sure they're hemodynamically stable before they start increasing their activity. So that is the short and sweet of patients having GI bleeds and the general ways that you will be taking care of them at the bedside.
Okay, so let's do a little bit of pod quizzing. I know you guys really like these. If you haven't heard of pod quizzes before, it's kind of like flashcards for your ears. I'll ask a few questions, pause, and give you a moment to answer, and then I'll tell you the answer. So it's kind of like you're doing flashcards, but you're driving or you're out for a walk right now. Okay, so I know I didn't go over this in the... um episode, but what would be considered a normal range for a hemoglobin? So this can vary, you know, depending on what source you are using. But for men, we're looking at, you know, like 13-ish to 17-ish range. And for women, it's like 12 to 15-ish. So it's a general range and it's going to vary by your facility or what your school says is the normal. So just know that's kind of where it is. Really in the clinical and the acute care setting, we don't get excited about a hemoglobin until it's kind of below the seven-ish area. Um, Patients tend to do okay, and I'm saying tend to because, of course, that's a generalization. Every patient, every situation is different. But if a patient comes in or you have a test question that says a patient's hemoglobin is 4.5, you know that's low. Even if you're not 100% sure what range your school or your facility is using, you know it's kind of in that 15, 17, 12-ish, 13-ish range, you're going to know that 4.5 is really low. So that would be considered super anemic. That patient's probably going to be getting some blood. What does it mean when someone asks if the patient has frank bleeding? So frank bleeding would indicate that bright red blood that's happening right now. What is coffee ground emesis? So that coffee ground emesis is going to be that clotted or partially digested blood that the patient vomits and then it looks basically like coffee grounds. And then what is melena or melena if you want to say it that way? So that's that black tarry stool that the patient would be having if they are Um, you know, having bleeding that could be taking place in the esophagus, the stomach, or the upper part of the small intestine. By the time it gets through the rest of the GI tract, it turns into that black tarry stool. It's like blood and stool mixed together. And then what is the medical term for frank blood passing through the anus? That was hematochesia. H-E-M-A-T-O-C-H-E-Z-I-A, hematochesia. Okay, so let's see, a couple more here. What do you want to make sure your patient has in place? Tell me three, four things, four things that you want to make sure the patient has if they have a GI bleed. Okay, so this is kind of a trick question. That would be two good IVs going. So I'm counting that as two things. You want to make sure that they have been typed and screened. They've got that blood band in place. And the fourth thing would be the consent form already signed, if at all possible. And then 
Let's see. What else can we say? Okay, so what is what kind of drug class is pantoprazole or protonix? That is a PPI or proton pump inhibitor. Okay, so those were just a few pod quiz questions to assess your understanding of taking care of a patient with a GI bleed. And if you guys love these, you are going to love, love, love the app that we are developing. I'm hopeful that it will be available soon. In the meantime, I do have a waiting list going for it so that you can be notified as soon as it is available. And if you go to straightanursingstudent.com forward slash 107, it will take you to uh, the webpage associated with this podcast, and then you can click on the link there. And I'll also put it in the show notes if you're looking at this on your mobile device. And I think that's all I had for announcements, you guys. Let me just double check. Oh, one other thing I did want to say is we do have our July start planners available. So I will also link to those as well. So if you're in nursing school and you're looking for a way to be uber, uber organized, the are amazing. I have printable PDFs and know of a great company that will print it, bind it all together, laminate the cover, make it look really great for you. They are incredibly reasonably priced and super fast and awesome to work with. And then it's also available digitally. So if you're one of those people that really likes to Uh, lessen your use and your reliance on paper, you will love our digital version to use with something like GoodNotes or Notability or something like that. Okay, you guys, so next week, I hope to see you back here. We will be talking about, oh, let's see, I wrote it down. Hang on one second, because I changed my mind at the last minute. Okay, so next week, we're going to be going and dissecting and really looking in depth at report sheets or brain sheets. I know I did a podcast episode way back about how to give end of shift report. And then I talked to a student who said, this is great, but I still, I need more. I need more in-depth information. What does all this stuff on the brain sheet mean? How do I use it to give and Um, receive report on my patient. So we'll be doing that in detail. It will include instructions. So before you listen next week, I want you to go to the website, straightynursingstudent.com slash 108. Um, Don't go there yet because the podcast won't be there yet. You have to wait till Thursday of next week when it's live. But go there and download the brain sheet. Or you can just go to my website and go to the resources tab and scroll down and download one of the brain sheets so that you have it in front of you. This will be one time when I say maybe don't be going for your walk or commuting while you're listening. Maybe be sitting down at your desk. It'll be more like a working session together. So that's... That one will be next week, and I can't wait to share with you all my advice for taking a thorough report and also giving an awesome thorough report at the end of your shift because that's such a key component to patient safety. So I'll see you back here next week, and have a great week, guys. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.